Hey everyone, it's Caleb. Welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I'm so grateful that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me. And today, I'm honored to be joined by Stephen Kotler, who has uh, written many books. And the book that we're going to talk a lot about today is called The Art of Impossible. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about Stephen and his background before we jump into our conversation here in just a couple of minutes. But before we get into that, I do want to tell you... Uh, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, a little bit about the podcast. You know, here on the Learner's Quarter, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. Because if you're like me, you've probably realized in life that you just can't talk with anyone about, you know, any subject. There are certain subjects that are kind of off limits to certain people because maybe you're afraid of the response that you'll get. Maybe you're afraid of being judged or you're just not sure how they will respond or you're you're afraid that there might be consequences to bringing up certain topics uh, with this person. But here on the podcast, we want to just create a place to where even if you don't feel like you have anyone in your life that you can have those types of conversations with, maybe you can listen in on some of those types of conversations, which honestly is part of my story as well and is part of the reason why uh, the podcast started as well. And so super excited to be bringing this conversation to you. Uh, Kind of one of the the mantras or the sayings around here is that we believe that we can learn from anyone and everyone from anything and everything. And, uh, you know, the person that we're going to be learning from today is Stephen Kotler. Um, And but before we get into that, I do want to give a quick heads up on this. Uh, You know, if you've been listening to the Learner's Corner for a while, we usually don't have... um, uh, a ton of language throughout this, but there is on this episode. And so if that's, uh, you know, something that uh, just want to just let you know about that. Um, because as I said, you know, here we want to create a safe place to have dangerous conversations or difficult conversations um, and learn from anyone and everyone. And so I uh, just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Uh, and that may be happening from time to time, just as we continue to learn and continue to grow. Uh, but before we get into my conversation with Stephen, I do want to let you know that we have a recommended resource of the week. You know, we kind of brought this back uh, several weeks ago. And today is is kind of a resource, but more of uh, a person that I've just been learning a ton from that I kind of want to put on uh, your radar. And uh, if you've been you've been listening to the podcast for a little bit, this is somebody who's been on the podcast. His name is Steve Cuss. And Steve is... Uh, uh, I was going to say, at the time of this recording, I think he is transitioning from being a pastor um, in Colorado to uh, to leading this movement of his uh, called Capable Life. And Steve does a lot of work with uh, anxiety coaching. You know, he's written he written, wrote an incredible book last year called uh, "Managing Leadership Anxiety." He was on the podcast earlier this year. And, uh, you know, after talking with him on the podcast and after listening to more of his stuff, um, and honestly, just dealing with some of uh, my own stuff with anxiety and just realizing, hey, he, you know, anxiety is becoming a little bit more prevalent in my life than I would like it. And I need some more tools in my tool belt to help figure it out. I decided to sign up for uh, his capable life coaching. And so I've been going through that and it's been incredibly helpful uh, for me. And so, uh, if anxiety is, I wouldn't even say if anxiety uh, is something that you're dealing with. If you're just looking to become um, more human, if you're looking to become a more loving and caring person, or if you are dealing with anxiety, Steve is somebody to definitely follow. And so I just want to put him on your radar. Uh, like I said, he's someone that I'm learning a ton from right now. He just did uh, this webinar series called uh, Healing the Divided Self. It wasn't a webinar series. It was uh, just a webinar to where he brought on a few different panelists and just talked about that. And so he's somebody that I'm learning a ton from. I enjoyed that as well. And there's a lot of takeaways from that webinar that uh, I'm still processing myself. And so just want to put him on, uh, just want to make you aware of him. And I'll drop uh, some of my favorite conversations. I'll drop the previous episode in there uh, and all the links to uh, some of the favorite stuff that I've encountered with him. And he has a podcast called Managing Leadership Anxiety also. So that's a little bit about Steve. Uh, but today, well, I guess we are talking with uh, a different Steve. We're talking with Stephen Kotler. And just a little bit about Stephen's background is that he is a New York Times bestselling author and an award-winning journalist. He is one of the world's leading experts in high performance. He is the author of eight bestsellers, including Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Tomorrowland, 
bold abundance west of Jesus, a small fury or furry prayer, and the angle quickest for flight. His writing has been translated into over 40 languages and appeared in over 100 publications, including the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Wired, and Time. He is uh, in both a small furry prayer and stealing fire were nominated for the pulitzer prize steven is the co-founder of creating equilibrium a conference concert innovation accelerator focused on solving critical environmental challenges and as i mentioned earlier today we're talking about one of his uh, brand new books called the art of the impossible super excited to bring be bringing this conversation to you also oh i almost forgot he is there uh, he is the founder, which is uh, where he got a lot of this uh, stuff from and learning from it, is he is the founder and executive director of the Flow Research Collective. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Stephen Kotler. Well, Stephen, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today to talk about your brand new book, The Art of Impossible. It's great to be with you. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, anytime that I talk with somebody who has, you know, uh, you know, released a book, created a piece of art, I love hearing the story behind what made someone want to put this out into the world. And so I would just love to hear from you, what is what is the thing, what is the event or the series of events that made you go, hey, I, I need to explore this subject more? Uh, so this is a, it's a tricky book to talk about that way because it's not one yeah. thing. This book is, um, there's 30 years of research that went into this one, right? Yeah. But the, so there's, there's sort of a couple answers to your question. The first answer is, I came, I became a journalist in the early 1990s. And yeah. journalism is this amazing career where you get to exploit whatever you're into. Like if you're into something, you can find a way to use it to make money. If yeah. you're right. And I was into two things. Action, adventure, sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding, the like, and neuroscience. And neuroscience in the, in the 1990s, when I was starting out, was especially interesting because we were just starting to get what they were then calling behavioral neuroscience, basically was how human beings work was starting to really happen in neuroscience um, at, a, at a really interesting level. So I was fascinated by both. Um, they ended up coming together, but that's ahead of the story. Yeah. Going into action sports, action sports in the 1990s is often spoken of as like, this is the great era of impossible, right? Where more so-called impossible feats, never been done, never going to be done, um, occurred than ever before. And they weren't just being done, they were being iterated upon. And this was in every avenue of action sports. And this alone was incredible. What the hell is going on? These people keep doing the impossible. But what really caught my attention, you know, I was reading about neuroscience, I was studying neuroscience and psychology, and I was, was writing about these things and um, was learning a lot about kind of what, how human beings work, how peak performance works, all that stuff. And one thing was really, really clear. The group of people I was seeing peak performance from didn't make any freaking sense. Because like what I was seeing on the inside in the action of sports world, everybody I knew who was routinely doing the impossible, they came from broken homes and bad childhoods. They had very little education. They had very little money. There was massive amounts of risk taking. There was a lot of drugs and booze. Normally, you put all those things together in a community, you in a group of people, you people go to jail and they die. They don't reinvent what's possible for the human species over and over and over again. And so, like, that's what I was looking at. And that's where all this started, where I was just like, what the hell is going on? How is this possible? Mm-hmm. 30 years later, that's, you know, the, the, that, that work led me to flow, which has been the core yeah. of the research I've done for my entire career, right? Flow is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. And it was this commonality showed up in all the athletes. And when I took my question of how to do the impossible out of athletics and into pretty much every domain imaginable, which is what I did over the next 30 years and asked the yeah. same question in science and technology and business, in art and culture, right? What does it take to do the impossible? What happens when the impossible becomes possible? Um, you saw the same thing, flow, flow, flow. So 
I built the Flow Research Collective, which is right the, the I think it's the now the largest or one of the best peak performance neurobiology research institutes in the world. And we studied the, the neurobiology of peak human performance. And our work is focused on flow. But, and here's the second half of your question. Yeah. This is why it took me a freaking long time to get here. It turns out flow, while it's foundational peak performance, every time you see the impossible become possible, and time you see people leveling up their game, you see flow. That is a story I partially told elsewhere. And when I have, but when I've told it, I've never done it in a how-to fashion. But it turns out flow is necessary, but not sufficient for peak performance. There's other things going on. A um, couple of three or four major other categories that are just as important as flow. And they're all designed to work biologically in a particular order, in a particular sequence. And if you get all these things going at once, pretty much anybody is capable of significantly leveling up their game and going after challenges that they never thought were possible for themselves. Yeah. So that's the... Short, long version, right? Long, <laughs> short version. I don't, somewhere in the middle. I tried. Yeah. No, it's good, and I appreciate it. Uh, there, there's a couple things in there that I want to go back to that you said you had mentioned that, you know, this is this is a journey of 30 years that you've been taken towards it, and I think that that is exceptionally rare. I think, especially for like people in my generation. I think whenever it comes to millennials, we can we sometimes have the the reputation of being wishwashy or maybe changing directions every uh, every so often. I would just love uh, your perspective on what do you think you've gained from staying with like the single focus of flow or moving in that same direction for 30 years that maybe you wouldn't have gained if you were changing directions, so on and so forth? Well, that's an interesting question. I flow was one of the things I did. There were a handful of other, right? Yeah. Like I did a serious moat, put it in context. Whenever you see the impossible become possible, you tend to see two things, right? You see people extending yeah. human capability and harnessing disruptive technology. Hmm. So I wrote six books on flow and the yeah. human side and six books on the technology side. So I had, my interests were, were actually um, a little more diverse than just flow, but you ask a yeah. great question. And I, I, that's the question I sort of, so I was doing a little more than just flow. It wasn't like this austere yeah. monastery of flow neurobiology. So I'm not, I want people to understand that I'm not sentencing you to a prison of one thing that's yeah. going to last the rest of your life when I say what I'm about to say. But, you know, one of the, one of, I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, so I, I have a very good friend who I ski with and I have been skiing now for almost 50 years. And I will tell you, the first time I skied with professional athletes was in my 20s. And at the time it happened, I thought I was one of the better skiers. I thought I was that good. I had been skiing my whole life. I had skied bummed after college. I really thought I knew my way around the sport. When I got onto an actual mountain with an actual professional athlete and saw the gap between where I was. So I have spent the past 30 years trying to close that gap. And I'm having this best season of my life this season at age 53. And I am finally, we were laughing. And the reason I, I said to him the other day, I said, you know, I'm doing now in my 50s everything I wanted to do in my 20s as an athlete. And, he, and my partner, who's considerably younger than me, started laughing. He said, I know. Um, he said, you have a different timetable than most people. <laughs> and it's true. And he, so here I will tell you in my opinion that one of the great, there's no secret secret in peak performance. First of all, there's nothing more than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. Mm. But when you, when all is said is done, the way I've attacked any of my goals is I figure out how to chunk them into something I can do today. And where victory is literally just showing, I have to show up and do the thing. I have to show up every day and I have to write a thousand words. I have to go to the ski mountain four times a week and I have to do a minimum of 16 laps, right? Like those, they're yeah. process goals. All I have to do is show up. The victory is doing them. Some days it's going to suck. Some days it's going to be Mozart. Um, actually, if it's me, it's probably never going to be Mozart, but it's going to be <laughs> something, right? You get my point. Um, and I think if you could, what is great about mission level goals in art and possible, I talk about the three tiers of goal setting. One of them is mission level goals. And that's sort of what you're talking about. My mission level goals, one involved writing, 
group books that had a deep impact. One involved advancing flow science and research and training. And one involves making the planet a better place for animals. And like, I try to do something every day that advances all those causes. I have, there's a bunch of support stuff that I have to do to yeah. support the fact that I, and that's all I do. Everything else is a no, because mm-hmm. life is filled with incredibly rewarding, rich opportunities that are phenomenal. But until those things that I are on my mission level goals are accomplished, I'm not done. So, uh, right. And the result and the way I think about my timetable, long story short, is people with really short wish timetables that way, they're not asking themselves really fundamental, obvious, easy questions. Like if I could do this thing five years from now, how would my life be different? If I could do this, if I had achieved this thing 10 years from now, how would my life be different? Rather than, oh my God, it's going to take me five years or 10 years to master this thing. Mm -hmm. The other thing, and this is really hard to learn, unfortunately, I wish it wasn't on the inside until you've done it, which is Stuart Brand, who's one of my early heroes, once said that the only sustainable happiness is the pleasure of a job well done. Mm -hmm. And I agree with him. And the the great, so let let, let me think about it, Caleb, think about your own life. Is there anything that you, like if you think about all the things, 10 things that made the biggest experience in your life that you're the most proud of and that led to the greatest opportunities on the backside? Did any of them come easy? Were any no. of them just given to you, right? <laughs> like these are yeah. the things you're proudest of, you're happiest oh, yeah. about and made the biggest difference in your life, right? None of, and I've asked this question to hundreds of thousands of people. You know what? I've never heard, oh yeah, dude, I won the lottery or this accidental, like people tell you their stories about, oh my God, it took me five years just to earn enough money to get into college, right? Cause I started as a blah, blah, blah. And, and, and that is the thing that, right? All that stuff you hear over and over and over again, people, we love actually the long, slow as people, like yeah. we really do. We really like those things. I, you know, I, I will say the skiing story is funny, but when I graduated uh, high school, it was 119 pounds and I was my height. I'm now 160 something, okay? And so you can imagine how skinny I was. I broke. I mean, like if I fell down, bones snapped. Like I broke, like I'm broken bones like nobody's business, but I had to put 40 pounds of muscle around my skinny frame to actually even start chasing the athlete's I wanted to chase around mountains around mountains without putting myself in the hospital. That took over a decade, right? And a little bit of time. And I will tell you, I, I love it. I sort of like love telling this story because it was so awful, but it was funny as hell to me. Now, I remember being in, I lived in San Francisco for a really long time. And I was in San Francisco. I'd probably been working out for five years at this time, like three times a week, four times a week working out. And I was in the gym lifting something and some muscle dude walked out to me. He was like, don't worry, kids, stick with it. You'll get somewhere. It just takes a little while. And I was like, motherfucker, I've been here for five years. Five years. <laughs> yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, I think there's tremendous pleasure in working towards these high, hard goals that take a long time. I think... Uh, the secret is sort of learning that the process itself is, is there's no, nothing happens when you achieve your goals, right? I mean, Art of Impossible hit 10 bestseller lists last week, 10 bestseller lists. It's a, it was a 30 year research project. It was five years to write the book. It was a year to design a campaign. So that would happen, right? Like that's, and honest to God, I woke up and I went, I, I saw it starting to happen. I was like, oh, we're hitting a bunch of bestsellers. Forget about it. And we're going skiing. Right? Like that was, I went yeah. skiing and, and and actually like did scary things on skis to distract myself from the fact that I was having, you know, what should have essentially been the results of, uh, you know, 35 years worth of work or whatever. But like, I'm about the process. I'm about, yeah. I'd run it right. Like it doesn't that, okay. You know? Yeah. Yep. Well, I think there's such, there's such power in that of what you were talking about too, of just realizing that you're not any different than the day before that you reached the the bestseller list either. You're really not. You're really not any different, and you don't 
want to be any different, right? Like the mm. problem with that stuff, we have, we, so all that internal feeling that comes along with fame and celebrity or whatever, it's all dopamine. We have t-shirts at the Flow Research Collective that say never trust the dopamine, <laughs> right? Now, it's the only swag we've got. It says never trust the dopamine because it's a false, it's a good feeling and yeah. you should like acknowledge it, love it, but like, don't want to get too involved in it because it does, it make you start making bad decisions. It, you know, I spent a really long, I, you know, I knew very early on that if you wanted to make, have a career as a writer, you have to get famous. There's no choice. Like if people don't know your name, you can't sell books. And like, it's part of, if you want to actually sell books for a living, you have to do this. There was a whole bunch of skills that came along with that. Right. So first I had to learn how to talk on TV. It took a decade. By the way, I got my ass kicked on television. You want to talk about embarrassing? Get your ass kicked on TV for a decade. For a decade. A decade. Um, radio, pot. You know what I mean? Like all the, there were all those skills that surrounded it. But I also, I grew up in one of those communities um, that was really weird and creative and punk rock and whatever. A lot of people got famous out of that particular community. And a lot of them turned into assholes along the way. So I spent a really long time trying to figure out how do you do this without becoming a schmuck on the back end? Also, because the ethical stuff really mattered to me. Yeah. Right. Like I was like, I know where I got to go, but everybody I've seen who's go gone there, um, it's sort of broken them mm. at, in, 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 in a way. And I was like, I'm going to figure out how to do that without like without those. So a lot I do a lot of stuff in my life specifically because the things that everybody want, wants, it's fine. You can want those things. I will tell you from the inside. That, I mean, the. The only thing those things are good for is that they shrink the gap between thought and thing in the world. I've got an idea. I've got a thing in the world that's real. That's the only celebrity, power, money, all of it. Like the only thing it's useful for is I got a thought. There's a thing in the world. That's what it closes. Everything else, it complicates as much as it makes better. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about like choosing, choosing the ethical path that you were saying and what that looked like. Well, it's, that's interesting. This is not in Art of Impossible at all, yeah. right? Which is great. I appreciate that. Give me a chance to talk about something. That I, <laughs> so you, but it's, it's interesting that you a, a raise that because this is a conversation. It's been happening a lot. A lot of people I know have been having it a lot lately. I would, remember having a conversation. I was talking to Rodney Mullins, who's, this, who's a skateboarder. He invented most of modern street skating. Mm -hmm. And he's an innovation genius, giving TED Talks and taught at MIT. He's an amazing dude. And we were both talking about how the older we, we can both get, the more and more we just want to surround ourselves with people of character. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one, you got to remember, I'm like a punk rock art weirdo. I'm not, you know what I mean? I, like they let me talk to businesses. And I often, like when I was first starting to get invitations to Wall Street, I was like, do you guys, like, do you have any idea who you're like, who, right? Like, do you really know who I am? Are you sure? Like, I mean, I'll come, but are you sure? Yeah. Uh, kind of thing. And um, when I came into the in, into the world, in, in, you know, out of high school and into college in the '80s, we fucking hated business, right? They were this was greed, Satan, awful. You didn't, you weren't interested in creativity. You weren't interested in passion, like all. You weren't interested in. Um, social equality, like all this stuff that were really important to all of all of us, like business was antithetical to that. So I originally, you know, went elsewhere because um, my interest, like there was a value, there was, there was values sort of baked in punk rock values. Mm -hmm. And when I say punk rock values for anybody who's, you know, not my age, and there's no, like they hear punk rock and they think anarchy in the UK, what's he talking about? I'm punk rock values were very much about DIY. It was a DIY movement more than it was anything else. It mm -hmm. was, we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to put out our own albums. We're going to make our own art. We're going to like, we're going to replace the entire business side of it and do it ourselves. That's, and that I came out of DIY journalism in the nineties where, you know, suddenly we got, we meaning creatives got the tools of, of publishing, right? Like that's what happened in the nineties. Yeah. Technology advanced to the point that like anybody could make things and we did and we took it over. So that's what I mean by punk rock. Um, so there was ethics built into it, but we, so let's back into it and then we'll get personal. We yeah. know from peak performance standpoint that we perform at our best when whatever it is that we're doing, it aligns with our curiosity, our passion, our purpose, right? Our strengths and our values. When all those things are pointed at the same direction, 
right? You asked earlier, what's it like to do one thing for 30 years or a handful? That's why you can do it, right? When all of you is pointed in one direction, there's, I was just, uh, I was talking to my friend Chase Jarvis earlier today at Creative, who, who runs Creative Live and he's been a photographer forever. And we were talking about, he was talking about how he thought when he was learning photography, he didn't realize he was learning because learning was this thing that they did in school and it was a totally different thing. It was bad, right? It was, yeah. it was history and math and like whatever. And then like, you know, he spent 10 years becoming best in the world. And he was like, it was only afterwards that I realized this was a learning process. I would right? like, it didn't feel like a learning process. It didn't even feel like I was right. I was just following my curiosity, my passion. And this information was, just, I was just absorbing it. That's sort of the point, right? If you get all these things pointing in the same direction, you get farther, faster with a lot less fuss. That's the whole, right? Like that's the whole point at the, at the heart of art impossible. And values are a big part of that. And I, what, you know, the business has not changed the way people do business. I don't like, uh, you know, I, I know that millennials arrived with a bunch of millennial values and, and ethics are, are, but like, um, and I don't think this is your fault. You know, like we still, if this is the goal, haven't taken it the last mile. Like there's just, what's clear is there's still work to do because business is still not operating. You know what I mean? Like we yeah. have, we are not, we have not been successful yet at this stuff. Um, but there is absolutely, you know, I, I definitely have written books about people who've used business as a force for good and like, you know, change the stuff yeah. and whatever. Okay. This is a random tangent that is taking us nowhere good. I'm going to stop. <laughs> Um, one, another thing that I wanted to ask you that you said earlier is you had mentioned that there's things that are just as important as flow. What are some of the things that are just as important as yeah, flow? So let's, let's talk a little bit more about what's at the center of the art impossible. Yeah. Understand. I said earlier, peak performance is nothing more than getting our biology to work for us rather than against yeah. us. Turns out that biology is a limited skill set. There's only like we're talking now, mind you, the book is focused predominantly on cognitive peak performance, mm -hmm. right? There's stuff. If you want to be the world's greatest athlete, there's other stuff out there that's probably for you. The, this, the cognitive skills are going to be the same, but there's, you know, there's that side of the question. That's not the side I'm on most of the time yeah. um, in this book. When you're talking about cognitive peak performance, you are talking about a set of motivation skills that will get you into the game. Now, motivation is a set of skills. It's not a single thing, we'd come back to it, but it's motivation skills that get you into the game. Learning skills is what allow you to continue to play, right? And learning yeah. is a bunch of skills, as you know. And then on the back end of that, there's creativity skills, which is how you steer, right? You're, you're, especially if you're going after the kind of goals I'm urging people to go after, harder, impossible, quote unquote, yeah. impossible goals. You don't know how to get there. So creativity is how you steer. And finally, on the back end of all of that, flow, from a neurobiological perspective, because it is literally optimal performance, right? It's in the human system, right? So flow is how we turbo boost all those skills and more kind of beyond all reasonable expectation. That is the entire suite. So I said there were subsets of skills, motivation, for example. When psychologists say motivation, most of us probably hear the energy for action because that's the technical definition of motivation. But what they're mm -hmm. really talking about is extrinsic motivation. Stuff we want in the world, money, sex, fame, right? Stuff we'll go out and get. Intrinsic motivation, this internal drivers that we've been talking about a little bit, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery are the big five that I focus on the most in the book. There are dozens more, but those are the, yeah. those are the four or five. And they're also talking about grit and goal setting, right? All those things get lumped in under motivation. Learning is the same kind of thing, right? It's skills acquisition, knowledge acquisition. There's truth builders on the front and there's like neurobiological stuff like a growth mindset and ex internal locus of control that you need internally to be able to learn, et cetera, et cetera. Set of skills, so you get the idea. But that's the full suite. And what we started to notice really, like to go back to your first question, in training peak performers over, I don't know how many people I've trained, my staff, um, I've my staff, we know it's over 100,000 and we think it's less than a quarter million. But it's somewhere in there. It's all a shitload of people, right? <laughs> Whatever the case. And the flow stuff, flow is an amazing application, right? Motivation goes up, productivity goes up, creativity grows up, grit goes up, learning goes up, empathy goes up, perception goes up, a couple other things go up, strength, stamina, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
sometimes it's like 500% of base, above baseline. Huge use of the skills. Turns out though, because we're all biologically hardwired for flow and we're really starting to understand, hey, this is the neuro, the neurobiology underneath flow. And the reason, by the way, why does neurobiology, why does it keeps using neuroscience and neurobiology? Who the fuck cares? The reason you care is this. It is very hard to train peak performance or self-help or any of those things, whatever, if you're using psychology, which is what most people do. And the problem is psychology is metaphor. Neurobiology is mechanism. Metaphor, it gets squishy. It gets individual. A lot of stuff gets, what are you yeah. talking about exactly? Right? Mindset. Does that mean attitude towards learning or attitude towards life? Or did you make up your own definition? Yeah. Or right, whose definition do you in? Or like, but you get to the neurobiology and mindset means, no, no, these processes are active in the brain. These are not act. That's what the fuck we're talking about. That's mechanism. Yeah. That allows us, right? Turns out flow is remarkably easy to train when you reduce that take things back to kind of neurobiological mechanism. What I mean by that is that the Flow Research Collective, we train about a thousand people a month. We measure flow pre and post. We use the standard psychological instrument for measuring flow. We see on average a 70% boost in flow. Mm. Wow, Stephen, that's amazing. It is amazing. The problem is in the beginning, this has changed now because I learned this lesson the hard way. This is the other sort of less answer your original question that's worth bringing up. People could learn the flow. Anybody could learn the flow stuff. We could get this 70 to 80% boost in flow in almost anybody. But there was a spectacular return to baseline on the back end, right? People go way up and they come way back. One of the things that happens in flow is you get five of the most potent reward chemicals the brain can produce. It's a fancy way of saying flow is the most addictive or pleasurable you forced yeah. on earth. Here's the good news. You can get more of that. The bad news is when you are in the business of doing that for people, like I was, and you're giving them 70% more flow in their life, and then suddenly, three months later, the flow tap gets turned off for some other reason, they're pissed. Like, they're really mad, right? Yeah. And um, it's, that was what was happening. And um, we, were, we were desperate to figure out why, and what we started to realize it, is it wasn't the flow, it's all the stuff that flow amplifies, motivation, learning, creativity. Imagine it, think of pre-performance this way. Imagine you're driving a, a Model T and I take your Model T and I soup the Model T up. I give it a turbo booster. It's got some NAS, right? It can now go 200 miles an hour, but it's got the same goddamn Model T tires that are skinny bicycle tires. Yeah. Your car may go 200 miles an hour now, but the support structure, the stuff that is going to, right, it can't hold, it can't hold the energy of flow. Flow is this mm -hmm. enormous turbo boost. And if I'll give you a simple example from yeah. learning. The flow states have triggers. I said, they're easy to train, right? What does that mean? Well, they have triggers. Flow shows up when all of our attention is focused on the right here, right now. So there are 22 things that we know that drive attention into the present moment. Those are flow's triggers, basically. One of them, the most famous, is what's known as the challenge skills balance. This says we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of that task slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want more flow in your life, push on your skills to the utmost when you attack challenge. As you know, because this is a learning podcast, that's a recipe for learning. Yeah. Right? You are, you will be learning. But if you're pushing your knowledge, pushing on your skills, but what it doesn't tell you is if the things you're trying to learn, if you have bad source material, what the hell are you learning from? Or do you have truth filters established on the front end to validate what blah, blah, blah? You, it doesn't, you could be learning everything in the world yeah. really fast, but if you can't trust it, if you don't know what's good, what's crap, what's going to be a waste of your time, what's going to actually take you towards your goals, you're screwed. And I, I see this all the time, right? People go down worming, wor learning wormholes without first establishing these are the parameters for truth. This is bullshit. This is how I know. So I don't have to want, right? Those, those tend to be, you know, there's all kinds of issues around that. So if you don't have everything trained up, you can't keep up with how fast you're going. Yeah. Talk, talk more about the truth filters that you write about in The Art of the Impossible because that was such that was such an intriguing idea to me as I was reading through the book. Truth filters are quite simply, and I've noticed, so I've, this is, a, it's, it was a commonality among almost every successful person I met. Forget even about people who have a capital D. I'm just talking about successful people is they all, conscious, unconscious, one way or another, they all seem to have a way or a process 
for assessing learning so they could separate fact from fiction and trust what they were learning, which is critical if you're trying to do art with your learning or build companies with your learning, anything, right? Yeah. There are a bunch of different ones. Elon Musk loves to talk about first principle thinking, reducing everything to first principle thinking. That's a truth filter. Uh, scientific method, that's a truth filter, right? That's an established way of, of saying, oh, all these facts point in this direction, we can trust it. When I came into uh, journalism, I was taught a truth filter. I expand, I changed it, but the original truth filter that I was taught when I was working with the New York Times is if you've discovered a fact and you can find three outside experts to confirm that fact, mm -hmm. it, you can publish it. I discovered that that was too limited. I now try to ask five outside experts to confirm a fact, and I talk at length about why yeah. but um, and why I think that's important. But even if you don't like any of these three, come up with your own, right? What you want is when you encounter cool information that may or may not be useful, you've got to know how do I determine it's useful quickly and accurately in a way that I trust. That's what you got to figure out. That's the problem you got you got to solve when it comes to truth filters. Yeah, talk more about why you decided to choose five experts oh, instead you, of yeah, the three. Yeah, you want you want the you want the story, don't you? <laughs> All right. So um, this was one of the most unpleasant experiences of my, of my career. So uh, and embarrassing, but we'll tell it anyways. Um, I was uh, I got hired by uh, a major magazine, major science magazine, to write what was then the very first story about the neurobiology of out-of-body and near-death experiences, which were this. So in the 1990s, we started to realize that there was, neuro, there was biology underneath so-called mystical experiences. Um, doesn't answer any of the why questions, by the way. So if people are spiritual on this and listening to this, mm -hmm. and they don't want to hear that their spiritual experiences have science, know that just because there's science underneath doesn't is there a God? Isn't there a God? We don't know. If there's a God, God communicates to us through biology. That's the only thing we're saying here. Yeah. Right. Like there's no, I'm not making a spiritual comment here, but it was a big deal. And when I started doing the research, one of the first things I discovered is that these crazy mystical experiences are really freaking common. Like 10% of the population, 10 to 20% of the normal population has had out of body and near death experiences. They're remarkably common. And we know a great deal about how they happen in the brain. And I was like, well, this, forget like how they happen in the brain for a second. The fact that like these things are common and we know how they work. Why isn't this front page news? Like this should be front page news. Like everybody I know is fascinated with this topic. Like why does not, why do people not know this? This is, I couldn't figure it out. And so I asked, did, I'm a New York Times. I asked my three, I asked my subjects, right? I, I like, I had this fact. Um, and I asked, a, I asked, I asked the first subject and he said, oh, well, I'll tell you what happened. There are these two dudes, they're both scientists, they're both new agey, and they wrote these big popular books about near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. And that's what went wrong. They, they chose the spirituality over the science. They wrote these best-selling books and they mucked it all up. And I said, oh, terrible. Okay. And I went to the next source and I said, hey, same question. They gave me the same two names. They said the exact same thing. Oh yeah. These two people, they wrote these best-selling books, blah, blah, blah. They mucked up the waters for everybody was serious afterwards. Cool. Went to the third source, got the same answer, wrote it, published it. By the way, went through the fact checker who went out and fact check it. She called additional sources and they confirmed. And it turns out every one of us was wrong. One of the researchers had in fact written a best-selling book about out-of-body experiences and was guilty as charged. The other guy I slandered was just about the most leading scientist on the science of altered states of consciousness, which would become my later field, right? Um, there was. And not only had he not written a New York Times bestseller on the top of altered states, his book on altered states was actually a collection of scientific papers on altered states of consciousness that nobody in their right mind other than another scientist would ever read it. Every, there was another person who wrote a bestseller. Everybody gave me the wrong name. Oh. So uh, I started realizing, oh, crap, you can't just ask three people. It's not enough, right? You could, like, this is terrible. I had to, the research was furious. I didn't work for the magazine again for 10 years. Like, it, it, that's a big fuck up. You don't, yeah. right? It's a 
big, big, big screw up and um, I slandered somebody. And what I started doing is asking additional resource researchers. And what I found, I, I settled on five because what I found is just four people in a row. So this is how journalism works because when you interview a subject at the end of the interview, you say, who else should I talk to about this? Who do you know? But that's a standard last question. And so you will go, right, you'll go through their friends in a sense. And, but you, by the time you get to the fifth person, you usually start getting somebody outside the discipline. What I started finding out is if you ask a fifth person, chances are they're going to contradict everything the previous four have said. And then you're going to have to go out and ask five more to get to the truth. But that's what I started looking for. I was mm. like, oh, there's somebody out there who's going to contradict this stuff. So I got to sort of keep asking until I start, you know, either there's no different answers that are going to show up after five or six people, or that's when the different answers start showing up. And I just wasn't digging deep enough. So that became my sort of my new way of, of approaching it. And, you know, it, it has so far, you know, held yeah. me in good stead. But, you know, it also means that every fact in the art of impossible, you know, there's about roughly three to five sources for every fact because, you know, that's how that's that's how I learned to do business now, um, yeah. which is challenging. But um, I can really super trust what's in my book. Yeah. You know? uh, another idea that I thought was very intriguing in there is you write about the five books of stupid. Yeah. Can you t can you tell about that? Yeah. So it's worth backing into this. So. The big idea here is about learning. How do you knowledge acquisition, right? Yeah. If there's learning, there's skill acquisition, there's knowledge acquisition. The five books of stupid um, is part of a process that I call the five not so easy steps for learning anything, right? And the only point here, the meta point here that's worth starting with is that when most people learn, they actually approach it wrong. They approach it like you approach it in, in, in school, and they didn't actually teach you how your brain learns. And it turns out your brain learns in a particular way. And if you work that way, you learn faster. So the five books of stupid is literally about, you know, what it takes to learn enough to start talking to experts, right? Because anytime you're learning anything, sooner or later you want to start talking to experts. In my experience, maybe your experience is different because maybe you had more street cred than I had when I was coming up. But like, if you're going to get a world's leading expert in a room, a couple things that you don't want to do. You don't want to ask them anything you can look up because you're wasting their time and you're wasting your time with them because you can learn that somewhere else. And how often in your life are you going to get to be in a room with the world's leading expert in something or yeah. get them on the phone or anything like that? So you do not want to waste their time at all. So it was a question of how can you learn enough be able to get into the room and start asking good questions. That was right. Five books of stupid gets you there. The point is to start with the easiest book and work your way to the hardest book. I'll let the book kind of break those details down. The thing yeah. that I want to focus on are the meta things about learning. What do you pay attention to when you're reading the books? Because I know most people when they approach learning, they're still back to the high school method where they're like writing everything down and taking notes and blah, blah, blah. I'm probably just as frustrated, right? Here's what matters when you're when you're doing this this particular process. Um, if you want to take advantage of the brain's inherent learning software, there's only three things that I pay attention to when I'm reading anything and trying to learn anything. The first is the overall history of a subject, and the reason is this: your brain naturally does cause links cause to effect. It's what it does in every single situation. Your brain wants to know. What, what was the cause? What was the effect? And can I use this to my advantage next time, right? Like that's what the yeah. brain's doing a lot. So when people say like, you know, the brain loves story, you'll sometimes hear that or, or, or we're, you know, we're, we're meaning making machines, all those things. What they're basically saying is the brain naturally links cause with effect. It does that automatically. You don't have to do any work for that. So if you start paying attention to the history of a subject, Worth remembering that any subject you're trying to learn is nothing fancier than a voyage of discovery. Mm -hmm. Somebody had a question. They answered that question. It led to another question. That led to another answer. Led to That's all you're looking at. I don't care how fancy the content is, how many equations are spouting off, whatever. You had a question, answer, next question, next. There's a, there's a narrative. That's history. It's a voyage of discovery. 
So just start paying attention to what happened when, just a little bit. Oh, this happened before this happened before. The reason is this, the history of a subject is sort of like the big giant Christmas tree. All the facts, they're the ornaments. But if you give your brain just the basic sketch framework of the narrative, it will naturally, because it's a cause and effect machine, turn it into a story, into a narrative. Oh, this happened first, this happened second, this happened third. This creates in a sense like a de facto memory palace for you. And when you're mm. learning additional facts, your brain has an easier time retaining them because it knows where to put them on the goddamn time. Oh, this is how yeah. this thing fits into the story, right? When yep. you're trying to learn a thing on itself, it's hard. When the thing fits into a story that you're already telling, no, no, it just, oh, this is that, right? Like, this is what happens. Automatic, essentially. Second thing to pay attention to is the technical language or sort of the jargon. And here, so jargon, most people, myself included, find jargon and technical language really annoying, right? Like, like I get, I always tell people who work for me and I, as a reporter, I was trained, if somebody needs a lot of big words to explain something, they're lying. Simple rule. Everybody I've ever met who's best in the world at their shit can explain it to you like you're a four-year-old. Yeah. The people who don't know their stuff are the people who need lots of fancy big words to explain to you because they're literally trying to dazzle you. They're like, that is, it's a really, I'm not, it's not always true, yeah. but it is as a rule of, as a heuristic, a pretty good one, right? And you probably learned this as a podcast <laughs> um, the hard way, right? Like the way we yeah. all learned this lesson um, one way or another, right? I had to learn it as a journalist because who do you trust? as yeah. sources and things like that um, in murky waters. That wasn't the question you asked me. The question you asked me was um, about learning what to pay attention to. I was talking about yeah. technical language and jargon. Yep. The secret here is this. Most people don't realize this, but most of the information in a subject is contained within the language of the subject. By learning the language of a subject, you are learning the bulk of a subject. And technical language, the example I give in the book is worth bringing up again is humans versus homo sapiens, right? If I was saying homo sapiens throughout this podcast when I meant humans, you would think I was a pretentious bastard. I understand that. But there's a difference, right? Homo sapiens yeah. means genus, species, right? I know that creatures, genus, species, and you know what it translates to, which is wise ape. So now you know you know, the, the genius of, of, of the thing, the species, and that somebody used to think that somebody thinks we're wise apes. You've got commentary. That's pretty much every technical word. They're designed that way so they hold more. The way I do it is if a, if a, a fancy word shows up in text, first time I just read past it, I don't even pay attention. If I see it five times, I'm like, okay, this one's, this is core. Yeah. What does it mean? And then every time it shows up in the book, I just say the meaning to myself. I look it up and then I say, oh, neurobiology means, okay, instead of reading neurobiology, I read the functioning of the human brain and the nervous system. Okay, right? Say it five times, you've got it. It's just locked in, end of problem. The final thing to pay attention to, and this is the big one, this is what really matters, is moments where what it is that you're learning excites your curiosity. That's the whole point. Yeah. Follow your curiosity through subjects. When you feel curious, or first of all, you're getting focused for free. That's brilliant. But curiosity primes learning in the brain. That's literally, that feeling of curiosity is literally the feeling of your engine is primed and ready to learn now. So if you follow your own emotional wows, what I call emotional wows, the times you go, whoa, right? And that's when you take notes. Take notes on your wows. Take notes on a little bit of the history, on the vocabulary. Take notes on your wows wow, this is really, it's linked to this thing. And I didn't know when your thoughts start to spiral, that's what you write down because that's what you're naturally interested in. And that's what you're going to remember later. This is the other thing that most people don't get, but you learn this the hard way as an author is if I were to ask you about your five to 10 favorite books, you could probably, five favorite books, you could probably tell me something about them. Like, you know, but if I go to like number six or number seven, by the way, if you go to like number six or seven on my list, I love these books, yeah. right? I love these, are, they changed my life, blah, blah, blah. But yep. ask me, well, what happened? I'm gonna be able to say, well, this book made me feel this way and like one or two facts, 
I mean, three facts, right? I'm an yeah. author and this breaks my heart, but I know it's true, right? You come up to me and say, Stephen, you're my favorite writer. And I think that's awesome. But what you mean is like, now you're remembering six facts out of my book in the mood. Like that's literally what it means, right? Like I, and that's just how the machine works. I wish it were different. You wish it were different. It, that's just what it is. So my point is that if you follow your wows, they really stick with you and you're going to end up with more than two or three facts from a book. You'll end up with much more. Your learning is going to be so much richer. Yeah. One, uh, one final thing that I wanted to ask about, and then I'll give you a chance to um, give any final thoughts that you want on the art of the impossible, uh, the art of impossible is I would regret it if I didn't ask you for all of your journalism experience uh, and your in your experience in asking questions, what are some of the things that you've learned in terms of curiosity slash journalism slash asking great questions of people that have really formed and shaped you? Because that's something so, that I always yeah. yeah. I, so a couple things, um, and I will. So there are a couple things I'm going to speak to, and there are. These are real problems. Your generation, millennials, are worse at this. I don't know why. I, I mean, I know why it is, but it's 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 a hindrance to it. So the first thing is, um, when I ask a question, my first question when I interview anybody, I demonstrate two things in that question. I demonstrate deep mastery of their work, right? I would never say I'm at, I'm telling you, you know, my buddy, David Eagleman, who's a neuroscientist who's done a lot of work on time perception. I'd never be like, David, dude, you're a neuroscientist who studies time perception. Tell me about time perception in the brain, right? Like that's, first of all, I've just put him in a position to lose and he's pissed at me. Second of all, what you want to say is, David, in your paper on time perception for the blah, 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 you said this, but in your book, when you're writing about high perception, you said this. So blah, I have just showed David that I've read everything he's written. I know his shit inside and out. And I, he can speak to me in a technical language and I can handle it. So he's going to speak freely. You want experts to feel at ease. You want, them to, that you want them to feel like they can speak to you in their own language, even if you don't understand it. Because you've got a tape recorder, right? Yeah. You want them to talk to you in their language. Because you can take notes, you can tape record the conversation, you can figure out what you didn't learn no later, or you can ask questions along the way. But like you want them comfortable, you want them to feel like you did your homework, right? You know everything that they've written, um, and you can you know ask intelligent questions, and um, those things matter more than anything else. I think in asking great questions is the level people prepare. I used to never go, and I'd go into interviews with 25 questions written down. I would have yeah. read, read everything. You know, half of the questions were, you know, a lot, lot of domain expertise, um, et cetera. Uh, I, and I think that's really key. Um, and yeah, so that, like, to, and, and to me that, like, I don't see that in millennials because they, I don't know, there's, there's, there, everybody wants to be everybody's friend and nobody wants to anybody to be an expert. So it's like, mm -hmm. bro, you're you're into peak performance. What? No, bro, I've spent thirty five fucking years doing this. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, and my time is valuable. And if I'm gonna give it to you, make me feel like it was worth a damn, right? Yeah. Like, um, it's because it because it you have respect matters, um, in a sense, and it also matters. This is the other thing that nobody gets is you don't want to have one conversation with an expert. You want that expert to love you and be your friend so you can call them for the rest of your life and ask them questions when you're stumped. That's what you want, right? That's what everybody wants. Yeah. That's the whole point. Why I have a career. I'm not a neuroscientist, and yet I do neuroscience professionally for a living at the highest level you can do it. And the reason is because the neuroscience trust me because I knew everything that they wrote and I asked really great questions and I got to know them over long period. Like that's how I get to do what I get to do. Yep. Right. And it's, it's worth taking the extra time to, to do that because you know, the, the, the flip side is 
you know, you have somebody you can, I have been, you know, my mentor, Andrew Newberg started out as like a neuroscientist who I asked questions that nobody else could ask for. I learned, I'll tell you what, I, I, I also like, I have a career because when I was, so I learned neuroscience the first time I was interviewing a guy named Dr. Robert White. And I thought I'd done all my homework. We were two hours into the conversation and I realized that I didn't know enough neuroscience to write the story that I like I, what I thought I had done my homework. And I just turns out, no, this stuff was, and I told him that he was retired at the time. And because I had done so much homework on the dude, he had spent his life devoted to one very controversial thing. I figured out why he was doing it. And it wasn't the reason he was telling the public. It was something else. And it was personal. I was like, Oh, that's why he's doing this. And because I figured that out and because I came correct with the questions, he took two weeks out of his life, spent two weeks in a lab at his old defunct lab. So this is like, you got, this is a case Western reserve university in Cleveland, Ohio. Or, and, uh, we, I mean, this is like, brains and jars kind of like, you know, old school neuro lab. We would show up at this, there were cobwebs. It would have been abandoned for 20 years, but he showed up for two weeks straight and he literally gave me a graduate education in neuroscience so I could write the story on him because I had done enough homework to figure out why he was doing the work he was doing. And I, that was my, I mean, you know, that was my first real start in this because I came out the other side of that with, you know, a really a better understanding of the stuff I was doing on a daily basis than most people will ever get. Yeah. Well, I know that people are going to want to pick up the Art of Impossible and continue to follow you wherever they can. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things, Stephen? StephenCotler.com. Uh, flow Research Collective, if you're interested in flow trainings, what the science, the work we do, um, Flow Research Collective. Dot com, theartofimpossible.com will get you all the information on the book you want that you can find it at the website. And if you're looking to order it, I think Amazon is your friend. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. Thanks for having me, Kelly. It's a pure joy getting to talk with Stephen. And I think coming out of that conversation, a, a couple of things that really stood out to me was just everything that he said about learning. I know that's a shock. I mean, uh, this is the Learner's Corner podcast for lifelong learners. Um, but what he was saying about the five books of stupid and just being even more intentional about what am I what am I missing when I'm learning? Making sure that I'm I'm learning about the correct things, or I don't even know if uh, correct things is the right term, but making sure that what I'm learning is right and being willing to double check and uh, go back and like reevaluate and start rethinking some of the things that I thought and being willing to reexamine some of that stuff just to make sure that I'm not missing anything and that I could that I could better understand the things that I'm really trying to learn about as well. And even just uh, his approach for um, for just making sure that he got all of the research right. You know, uh, for me, that's something that I've just been paying attention to as I'm, uh, you know, trying to work on, you know, just creating some of my own stuff as well and just making sure that I want to put the best, most accurate stuff out there because I want to help people the best that I can and that that's going to require, you know, putting stuff out that is true, that is that is fact-based, that is uh, grounded in research. And so that's some of the things that, that really stood out to me from this conversation. And I would love to hear from you and what stood out to you from this conversation. And the best way to let me know is just go ahead and just uh, you know tag me on Instagram or hit me up on Instagram. Uh, my DMs are open. Would love to hear from you and some of the, the takeaways that you're learning from the episode as well, whether that be this episode or a previous episode or even just some of the things that you're learning about. Would love to hear about those things. Uh, also, leave a rating and write a review of the podcast if it's helped. If this podcast has helped you, um, that's one of the best ways that you can uh, help spread the word about this podcast as well. And just go ahead and hit the follow button on this or uh, subscribe on whatever podcast player you're using, Spotify, you know, Overcast, uh, the new Apple Podcasts, uh, or the new design for the Apple Podcast if you're an Apple Podcast uh, listener, anything like that. Also, before we get out of here, I just want to give a couple of quick thank yous. Thanks to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for this podcast. Thanks to Sam Massey, who has created the music for this podcast. And thank you again uh, to Stephen Kotler for being on the podcast. 
It was awesome. And hopefully we get to do it again someday. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.